Well, uh, today is our last day in this series called Connect With. We've been kind of walking through what does it mean for us to connect with our neighbors? What does it mean for us to uh, be people who would show them hospitality? Yes, but ultimately, what does it mean for us to be the kind of people who would connect Jesus to our neighbors? And so we're going to kind of take this last day to focus on something really specific, which you will figure out as we go along. Uh, Before we get too far into that, though, I want to talk about the concept of responsibility and personal ownership. When I was in school, uh, as a student, there there would come these moments when the teachers would leave the classroom. They would have to go uh, do something, have to go get something from the office or something like that. And so they would do this amazing thing where when they would leave the classroom, they would pick a student to be in charge of the classroom. They would pick somebody who would, uh, who would kind of take responsibility for the classroom. And so, uh, you know, if I was that kid, if I was the one who was called out and got to be uh, placed in charge, then what would happen is I would kind of take this level of responsibility for the room that I hadn't previously taken. Like, I, I would become more concerned about uh, what was happening in the classroom. I would become more concerned about the ways that people were relating in the classroom. I would become more concerned that people were actually doing their work. Now, why did I do that? The reason was is because my teacher, somebody in authority, called me out and they said, hey, guess what? You're in charge for just this, like, brief period of time. And so there was something about having ownership in that moment, um, when I was a kid, I was given a, uh, a sapling tree, uh, and so I honestly, like, I could have cared less about trees. Uh, trees did not matter very much to me, but now I had ownership of a tree, and so uh, I planted that tree in a pot. I made sure that that tree got watered. When that tree got bigger, I made sure that that tree ended up in the ground somewhere. I took care of this tree. I tended to it because I was given ownership of it, and now you can see a picture of that very tree that I'm talking about right here. Here's that tree. Uh, After a long time of it being cared for, it has now grown to this size. Now, I don't have a personal concern for many trees, but I care about this tree. I care how this tree is tended to. I care uh, that this tree lives on and that it is treated well. It's planted in my parents' backyard right now. I had my mom this week go out and take a picture of the tree for me because I wanted to tell you about the care that I have for this tree because I was given personal ownership of it. Um, So when I was at Village Church, when I was a pastor at Village Church, uh, I did not notice or care much about how the church lawn looked. Like, that was not a personal concern of mine. But then when I came to ABC, we do this amazing thing here where we all share responsibility in caring for the church lawn. And the amazing thing is... I now happen to care a lot about how the church lawn looks because I have, I'm like on that mowing list and I have a level of personal ownership now in what this looks like. So, uh, so let's define personal ownership and help us understand it a little bit more. Ownership is this. Ownership is a personal commitment to rightly oversee, care for, 
and handle. A personal commitment to rightly oversee, care for, and handle. So you don't have to talk about ownership very long, and you don't have to look at our world very long to realize that we have a problem, which is that human beings are actually pretty poor owners. Human beings are poor owners. And you and the reality of the situation that we're in is as we read the testimony of Scripture is not only are we poor owners, but we actually lack what it takes to become good owners. So, uh, so like in our world, as we observe our world, we see brokenness in ownership. We see it inside of human beings, brokenness in ownership. How does that play itself out? Well, uh, we often lack commitment to things to which we were called to be committed. Uh, We often fail to take responsibility when responsibility falls to us. We often uh, wrongly oversee a thing when we are taking responsibility for it. We often neglect things that we're required to care for. We often mishandle and misuse things for broken purposes. And so all of this points to the fact, as we look at the world around us and how ownership is carried out, that we have an ownership problem. Now that ownership problem is a symptom of an even more basic problem that exists. Like as we look at the testimony of scripture, as we look even at the beginning of the Bible, we see that we were created to live out of a life-giving relationship with our creator. That's what God intended for us. And so everything about us, including our ownership, was meant to fall and flow out of our relationship with God. But when humanity rebelled, something crazy happened. We were cut off from the presence of God, meaning we were cut off from that life-giving relationship. So another word to describe this problem is spiritual drought. Spiritual drought. That's what happened when, when we fell in our ownership and we fell into brokenness, when we disobeyed God. Uh, God cut us off from that place where was, we were supposed to have a source of life, the garden where his presence was. We were cut off from his presence. And now all of our symptoms of brokenness, including the ways that we take ownership, are a result of this spiritual drought, this uh, disconnection from our relationship with our creator, from his presence. So, what happens in a drought? Like, in a physical drought, we have some experience with this in 2020. What happens in a physical drought? Like, our country has seen, uh, we see wildfires just go crazy. We see food supplies in the areas that are in drought start to drop. It impacts travel. It impacts living situations. In other words, what you have in the middle of spiritual drought is chaos, chaos breaks out. So, so that's physical drought, and, and spiritual drought is no different. It causes chaos, and this chaos extends even to our ownership. Okay, so when we come to Scripture, among the very first pages of Scripture, we are confronted with the reality of spiritual drought, which means that as we come to Scripture, it should actually help us to answer a question. And that question is, how does God intend to deal with spiritual drought? So to answer that question, our primary passage this morning, we're going to be in Joel chapter 2, the passage that Pastor Don read for us. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. But, but this, this question is actually going to send us all throughout Scripture. And so we'll be planted in, in really three different places 
in Scripture. So we'll really be using our Bible. So you will need a Bible with you this morning, either on your phone or physically in front of you. So I'd encourage you to go ahead, go ahead and pull out your Bibles. And the place that we're going to start this morning is in Numbers chapter 11. That's where we're going to kind of kick off uh, understanding how God intends to deal with spiritual drought. Numbers chapter 11. So, uh, so where we're at in the story, Numbers 11 occurs in the middle of a story, and, and in that story, God uh, starts addressing the problem of spiritual drought by calling out a people for himself, calling out the people Israel. And how does he call out this people? He communicates his intentions to very specific individuals. So uh, he miraculously empowers them then to carry out these commands. So what does he do? He appears to Abraham. He, he appears specifically to Abraham, he speaks specifically to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And then uh, he has this relationship with Isaac, and then uh, with Isaac's son, Jacob, and then uh, he, we see God even have this relationship with Joseph. He's interacting with specific individuals, and what we see is that he is uh, miraculously speaking to those individuals about his intentions for his people. And that, that somehow his communicating of these intentions is, is, has something to do with how he plans to address this spiritual drought. We see this uh, throughout the book of Genesis, and, and, uh, and we see him communicate with these people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, about his desires for this nation that he's creating for himself. And then uh, we see this special people of God end up in Egyptian slavery. And so... What does he do for his people who are in slavery? Well, he communicates to a specific person and empowers that person. He empowers Moses to be a deliverer of his people out of Egypt. And so what does Moses do? Well, he comes along and he performs these miracles under God's power. And and then Moses gives God's law to God's people and he passes on God's desires to them. So, so who are Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Joseph and Moses? Who are these people? We should think of them kind of like owners, kind of like people God has called out to take ownership. God called them out, and what he did is he gave them special responsibility. And not only did he call them and give them responsibility, but he actually empowered them to rightly oversee and care for and handle his commands for his people. So then, uh, at Numbers chapter 11, we've, we've been watching Moses take ownership of these things for a while. A- and we see in the middle of Moses taking ownership and, and leading God's people and delivering to God's people God's words, we see in Numbers 11 verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Okay, so (coughs) this is probably one of the most ridiculous passages in all of scripture because these people have been saved by God's hand out of the land of Egypt where they were oppressed, where they were experiencing the worst kind of hardship and God has drawn them out and now he's providing for them in the desert and they don't like the food. They're complaining about the food and so they, they talk about all these things that we used to eat. They were free. 
Well, they weren't that free. You were in slavery. Like, that's what you ate to stay alive, right? But they seem to kind of be recreating events uh, to suit their narrative. And so, while Moses is taking ownership of God's responsibility and commands for his people, the people themselves are the ones complaining. Uh, and what do we see with the people? Well, the people are just suffering from spiritual drought. We see these people in the midst of their spiritual drought. I mean, look at what happened to them. They were saved by God's mighty hand. They saw God's power put to shame the Egyptian gods. They saw God perform many miracles in the land. They saw God's presence. They still see God's presence with them, leading them through the desert. But once again, they are complaining. What do they essentially say? This is what they essentially say. They say, you know what, Moses? Egypt was better to us than Yahweh is. Egypt was better to us than Yahweh is. So this is problematic because Moses is trying to lead these people and what he gets are people who consistently complain against him and against God. And so Moses addresses this with the Lord in Numbers eleven eleven. This is what he says. He says, Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? You see, their, their spiritual drought is creating chaos in their midst, and it's actually making Moses experience the weight of being the only one who is carrying this responsibility. He feels the weight of the chaos uh, of their spiritual drought spreading throughout them. And he, he says to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with me? So then the Lord has a solution for this. Uh, verses 16 and 17, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel. And then uh, skip to the middle of verse 17, and it says, And I will take some of the spirit that is on you, and I will put it on them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you. This is what God tells Moses. He says, Moses, I am going to spread out ownership. I'm going to uh, equip more of my people to help oversee, to help care for, to help handle my commands amongst my people. Moses, this is what I'm going to do. And so verse 25, we see that he does it. And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, something interesting happens. They prophesied. They spoke God's words. To this point, this is an unwitnessed event because we've only seen God work through a specific person, speak through a specific person, carrying commands to other people. But now at this moment, we see God's Spirit work through 71 different people and they all prophesy together. That God would put his spirit on this many people is unheard of. And so in Numbers 26, uh, or verse 26, it's interesting what happened. So now two men remained in the camp. So interestingly enough, there are two men who probably should have gone uh, to the meeting of the elders, but they didn't go. And so they remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. So, so you have these elders who are gathered together, and then you have these two kind of stragglers left back in the camp, but the spirit of the Lord fell on them too. So watch what happens in verse 27. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. 
Like these guys are there in the middle of God's people. They've only watched Moses, by the way. Moses and Aaron kind of be the conduit of God's power and the conduit of God's word. But now these guys, Eldad and Medad, they're speaking the, word, the Lord's words to his people. And so in verse 28, and Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, my Lord, Moses stopped them. He's worried about what's happening. He sees it, he's like, they're gonna disrupt the authority structures. Mind you, Joshua is getting ready to step into leadership. Like, he's next in line for leadership, and he watches what's happening. He's like, they're listening to these people speak God's words, and that's not good for your authority. This is not a good thing. And so Joshua, he's worried about all of this. He fears chaos that might break out. Ironically, this is God's solution to the chaos. Moses knows that this is good. Why? Because more of God's people are taking ownership of speaking God's words with God's power. So verse 29, it says this. Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all of the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Moses' heart In this moment, he's recognizing something crucial. When the Lord himself speaks to people and empowers them to be owners of his commands and his words, then good and right and holy things happen. Spiritual drought becomes abundance. So Moses' words here help to see the need that exists. All of God's people need to be empowered by his spirit to own his words. Okay, so now turn in your Bibles to Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, it's uh, one of the minor prophets. It's towards the back of the Old Testament. That's where you can find that. And as you're going through that, I'll kind of tell you a little bit about Joel. Joel is a prophet. That means that Joel is a person, a specific person, who is receiving words from God, and he's communicating them to God's people. He's taking ownership of God's direction. And Joel tells us about this locust plague that just hit Israel. Uh, this, and he, he tells them, he lets them know, hey, this was God's judgment. But then Joel also helps us understand that this, this act of God's judgment, that it was also kind of a forecast of this event that was coming in the future called the Day of the Lord. And the Day of the Lord is God's final judgment that's coming on the whole earth. And so, so he, he's taken what has happened in the recent past, and then he's using uh, that event in the recent past to fix Israel's attention on the end of time when God is going to judge everything. And then he says to Israel, in between now and then, you need to repent. And you know what's going to happen? I'm going to restore you repent and then I'll restore the years that the locusts have eaten. This is what Joel talks about. So this is, he, he's fixing our attention on the end of time. He calls them to repentance and then he gives a hopeful promise in Joel 2.28. And it shall come to pass afterward, meaning after this time when you repent and the, you start to see the Lord restore, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The imagery that Joel provides is like dry ground receiving rain, like cracked ground, spiritually callous, cracked, parched people. What I'm going to do for them, what I'm going to do for you is that I'm going to do something I've never done. I'm going to give my spirit 
to every single one of them. So here's what it will look like when that happens. Joel goes on in verse 28. He says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female slaves, servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. So first thing to notice is that he wasn't kidding when he said all. When he said sons and daughters, he's saying there's no distinction in gender here. I will pour it out on both men and women. When you're old men and you're young men, what he's saying here is that there's no distinction in age. Everybody, old to young, receives this gift. When he says, even on, he's like, and also, like you wouldn't expect this, even on the male and the female slaves, meaning that, that not even class distinctions can stop his spirit from coming to his people. There's no distinction. All are privileged to access to the Spirit. So that's the first thing I want you to notice. The second thing I want you to notice is this. He uses the words prophesy, dreams, and visions. These specific words. Why does he use these words? So just so you understand, um, when, when Hebrew prophets, they write things, they write them very poetically. Uh, and as they write things poetically, they use something that is sometimes, uh, that is called parallelism. Uh, so, so parallelism basically uses multiple words or multiple phrases to repeat the same idea in different ways. So when he says, your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, so he uses three different verbs, three different action words, prophesy, dream, and see, but the goal is to say basically the same thing with all of these things. They're getting at the same basic idea, and that idea is this. They will be prophets. When I pour out my spirit on them, they will be prophets. So for the Hebrew, this is something that only a few special people do. They're the the faithful people. They're the heroes of the faith. These are the prophets. These are the specific people that are called out. Those are the ones who took ownership for God's direction for God's people. And so what this promise is saying is that God's now giving his spirit not just to a few people, not to just a select group of people, but to every single person. Every one of God's people is going to be like the mighty prophets. Every person will take ownership of God's word and God's direction. This is what he's saying. So, so what comes about after this liberal distribution of God's spirit to all of his people? We see two things come about in verses 30 through 32. So the first thing is in verses 30 and 31, and it says this. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So the first thing that happens after God liberally distributes his spirit and he uh, pours out his spirit and he solves this spiritual drought problem, the first thing that we're going to see happen is that God will carry out his day of judgment on the earth. And then the second thing that happens is in verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, number one, God is going to carry out his judgment on the earth, but number two, that's not going to happen before. He has made it possible 
for many to be saved by calling on his name. So don't miss this because this is huge. This is unprecedented. So who are the ones in Israel, the people in Israel, who are the people in Israel that get people to call on God's name? That, that issue uh, words to get people to call on God's name. Are they not prophets? The ones empowered by God's spirit to take ownership. When God pours out his spirit and makes this new collection of prophets, this, this event comes prior to the day of judgment so that the prophets, they can give good news of salvation from the judgment that is coming and call people to call on the name of the Lord. So, so Joel's two-pronged promise is this. Number one, God will make all of his people prophetic owners. So, so prophets, he'll make them prophets. He'll make them owners of his word, of his commands, of his direction. They will each take ownership of it and, and, and communicate it. And how is he going to do this? Well, he's going to pour out his spirit on every single one of them. So God's going to make his people prophetic owners. And the second piece of the promise is this. Other people will repent and be saved. When, when God's people take ownership of his words by his power, then other people will repent. They will hear those words and they will call on the name of the Lord and they will be saved. Okay. So how does that get carried out? Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. This is the last place that we're going to park this morning. In Acts chapter 2. So just so we understand the context, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus spoke to his disciples and he told them that the Spirit was coming, that they would receive power, that they would become witnesses when this happens. And so um, we watched them wait for the Spirit. And so in Acts chapter 2, we see their waiting come to an end. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And skip down to verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here in Acts chapter 2, we see the beginning of the fulfillment of this promise, the Spirit flooding like rain on dry ground. And normally when we read this passage, most people read this passage and we see the miracle of the tongues, people speaking in all of these different languages, and that is a spectacular miracle. That's significant, but there's a simultaneously significant miracle that is a more direct fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel. God gives words and people start speaking those words. All of his people are opening their mouth to speak them. Every single person in there, uh, potentially 120 people there together, God pours out his spirit, they take ownership and they start speaking his words. And what is the result of this miracle? Jump down to verse 11. Uh, People witness this happening. They uh, kind of are in wonder, especially because they're all speaking different languages, but somehow the people who are watching are able to understand them in their own language. They can hear the words that they're saying, and so this is, this is what they say as they're exclaiming this. They say, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. 
The people who are watching and hear, they understand what is happening. And so what happened? God's spirit was poured out and then God's people started speaking God's words with God's power. And then, uh, so we're in the book of Acts, which means that this is after Jesus's resurrection, which means that God's mighty works are in fact related to Jesus and everything that he accomplished and the fact that he rose from the dead and the fact that he showed his power, that he is both Christ and Messiah. So I guarantee you that when it says the mighty works of God, the words that these people are hearing are words about Jesus, the things that Jesus said, the things that Jesus did, the things that, the, that he accomplished, the things that they witnessed him do, and we see all of this culminate in one of the most spectacular sermons in the whole Bible. Peter speaking words about Jesus, and how does Peter open that sermon? He quotes the passage that we just read from the prophet Joel, and he speaks words about Jesus. The things that Jesus said. The things that the prophets were saying about Jesus. The things that Jesus accomplished. Who Jesus is. What they experienced when they walked with him. How those watching are witnessing now the fruit of Jesus' work. In short, every person, every person who receives the Spirit, with Peter being the prime example of all of them, they receive this empowering Spirit and they become prophets. They own gospel truth, good news about Jesus, and they speak it to others. So what does this mean for us? Our main point this morning is this. Christian, you are empowered to boldly own gospel truth. You are empowered to boldly own gospel truth. You see, we are the parched ground human beings. We are the parched ground. We are the, the, the spiritually desolate people. But if we've heard and believed, then we are those on whom God's Spirit has been poured out. Which means that we have become recipients of God's special revelation. God has specially shown something to us that he has not shown to anybody else. Every time we reflect on and hear truth about Jesus, like how Jesus died for us, how he stood in our place, how he took our judgment on himself, how he was resurrected with power, all of these things. Every time God helps us to plunge the depths of these things in both seemingly natural and supernatural ways, every time we're captivated by Jesus, The Spirit is at work in us, specially speaking God's mighty deeds to us so that we might become sharers of God's special revelation. Every time we open our mouth to speak to those who are far from God about a a facet of Jesus' character, about how we've experienced Jesus' goodness, about what it is that Jesus has saved us from, about how it is that Jesus has saved us. Every time we open our mouths about the things that Jesus did, every time we talk about Jesus's commands, every time we uh, talk about the things that Jesus calls his people to, the things that he taught, we operate as prophets in this world. We operate as owners of the special truth that has been given to us specifically that we might pass those things on to others. So uh, 
what does that mean for us in the middle of this series, actually at the end of this series called Connect With, where we're trying to see our neighbors connected with Jesus. You know, we've been focusing on the, the, the last few weeks about what it means to help our neighbors connect with Jesus. And specifically, we've been focusing on hospitality. We've looked at this flow chart, right? This flow chart of how God works, that, um, that we uh, first exercise hospitality, and our hospitality creates openness. And then that openness, it, it, it leads to, uh, you know, this level of acceptance with them. And then as they get to this level of acceptance, what we do is, now we have this opportunity to share our reasons, are reasons that they have an opportunity to respond to with repentance that leads to salvation. Right, so, so understand what Joel's promise is saying. Joel's promise is saying God's people are gonna speak those reasons and people will respond with repentance and faith and, and God will save them. Everything that happens here in this last piece of this flowchart, the sharing of our reasons and the response and the repentance, everything that happens here is because the Spirit has been poured out. Which means that every time you open your mouth to speak truth about Jesus, every time you share the reasons for the hope that is in you, the Spirit is powerfully at work in you and through you as he has called you to be a prophetic owner he is powerfully speaking words to the people to whom you're opening your mouth okay so what so what number one tools our tools are important but attitude is more important what do i mean by that I have three questions as you think about your attitude in opening your mouth to speak truth about Jesus. My first question is this, are you captivated? So um, as a kid, um, when I would receive special instruction for a task, I knew I was being given a specific task to do. And and the person who gave me that task, they, they gave me special instruction. I remember as a kid, feeling goosebumps at the opportunity to hear somebody give me special instruction on how to do this task. Tell me exactly what it was that I needed to do to carry out this task. I remember listening intently. I remember being captivated in this moment. And that's the attitude we're we're to have every time we hear the gospel. Every time you hear truth about Jesus, do you hear it as God's special instruction and revelation to you? Because that's what it is. That's what he's given to each of us, his special word about what it is that Jesus has accomplished. So are you captivated? My second question is this. Are you nervously excited as you think about opening your mouth to share truth about Jesus. So, so you might just be nervously nervous as you think about that, and that's uh, reasonable. I understand that, but I just want to let you know, when I get in that mindset, because I myself end up being nervously nervous when it comes to sharing truths about Jesus, it's often, when I get in that mindset, it's often because I lost sight of a simple fact. 
The powerful spirit of God is at work every time my mouth opens and speaks about Jesus. The powerful, that every time I would utter things about Jesus, truths about Jesus, good news about what Jesus has accomplished, then the, the Spirit of God is powerfully at work, and I can take confidence in that. That means I can get nervously excited every time because I can't wait to see what God will do when I'll open my mouth about Jesus. And that's not just me. Like, That's not just the pastor. That's every single Christian, everyone who has called Jesus their Lord. The Spirit has been poured out on all of us and is at work every time we open our mouth to tell truth about Jesus. So are you nervously excited? And my last question for this, so what is this? Are you committed? We've been given the gift of God's special revelation of what he has done in Jesus Christ, the good news. And that is not to end with us, but we are to pass it on to all of those who are around us. You know what, you practice in, in, when you're in relationships with Christians. When you, if you happen to have a Christian family, you get to practice with each other, opening your mouths about Jesus, and the Spirit can be at work in those moments. And then you go out into a world and you just open your mouth about Jesus because it's what he has done for you. It's, it's who he is and it's what he has accomplished. Jesus brought our li- bought our life with his blood and he has specially called us. And we've been given a special task a special word from God that we are to take ownership of, to pass on in our spheres, spheres of influence. So are you, you just like a simple way to process commitment. Are you as committed to that task as you are to your job? Are you as committed to that task as you are to your family? Because this is the very reason we've been given the gift of the Spirit, to pass on God's special revelation to all people. So, okay, so I asked three questions, and if you answered no to any of those questions, you're like, okay, so what do I do? I want to tell you that shame is not the answer. Shame is not the answer to answering no to any of those questions. Surrender is. Surrender to the Lord whatever is holding you back from saying yes to those questions. Because when God's people open their mouths and speak God's words, amazing things happen. Number two, when you have nothing else, so if you're nervous about finding the words, the right words to say and that kind of stuff, when you have nothing else, you have your story with Jesus. You have your story which means you have how you have encountered Jesus. You have uh, the reality of uh, what Jesus has accomplished for you and how he has changed your heart and how he has worked in your life, how he has forgiven you and how he's offered you grace when you didn't deserve it. You have a special story that nobody else has, which means if you have nothing else, you at the very least have this experience of Jesus to be able to share with other people. So be encouraged with that. And number three, number three, I want to encourage you to strive to become fluent in gospel truth. Strive to become fluent in gospel truth. So what do I not mean by this? I don't mean reciting the Romans road to people. I don't mean uh, providing people with the four spiritual laws, although those are various tools that can be helpful at times. 
Um, when I say become fluent in gospel truth, I don't mean you know, sharing the truth of sin and Jesus' salvation from sin, although that is definitely part of what it means to share gospel truth. That is important. But what I mean when I say this, become fluent in gospel truth, actually, behind that there's a question. That question is, do you see the connection of truth about Jesus to every aspect of life? And can you help others see what you see? Can you learn to speak in ways that you might be able to help others see what you see? So what are some examples of what I mean by this? So say, for example, you go and serve your neighbor. And uh, somehow through serving, because not many people serve other people as we live in the suburbs and we're all supposed to be independent and self-sufficient and that kind of stuff. So, uh, so when you you're serve your neighbor, you're, your neighbor asks, why did you serve me? There's an opportunity to say something as simple as, Jesus served me when I didn't deserve to be served. And so I'm going to serve, I'm going to pass that service on. It's a simple phrase, it's a simple thought, and it connects directly to the experience that you're having right now. Uh, Maybe, here's another example, maybe you walk into relational tension between coworkers. And you step in as a peacemaker. You help them with communication. You give them words to say. You help to try them to resolve them. And, and you, in the midst of that, you actually have an opportunity to talk about God's heart to make peace as displayed in Jesus. Maybe you, uh, there's a situation where you respond with, with gentleness when other people would typically get angry. Uh, and that might lead you to note Jesus' patience with you when you are being a dummy, right? Like all of these things, as we look at all of life, we have opportunity to see how does the truth about Jesus connect to this, and then how can I help to share with others these truths? So the conclusion. Um, We're not, for what it's worth, we're not done talking about how we become people who handle gospel truth well. In fact, I would say that we are simply beginning to to have that conversation. We are going to talk at length about this. This will continue to come up in our preaching and in our equipping as we uh, work to be uh, people who develop Jesus followers who connect well, right? That's something that we're aiming to do. So we're going to keep talking about this. We'll equip for this more. We'll pray for greater openness to God's Spirit speaking through us. That's all true. That's all going to happen. But we must... We must start with taking ownership of this gospel truth that we have been given. Noting that when God has spoken it to us, he's not just spoken it to us for our own sakes, but he's spoken it to us and given us responsibility to pass it on to other people. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, as our attention is drawn to who you are and what you have accomplished. Lord, I ask this morning that you would help direct our hearts towards you, yes, but but out from there as you have spoken words to us that you would direct them towards our neighbors. That we would begin dreaming about how we can speak gospel words to our neighbors. That we would begin imagining 
how the truth of what you've done, the things you've said, what you've accomplished can connect to our neighbors in specific ways. Lord, that you would help each and every one of us to take ownership of this gospel truth that you've given us and become those who handle it well in our spheres of influence. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for what you have accomplished and may this gratefulness, may this thankfulness, may it well up in the passing on of your gospel to other people. We pray all of these things in Jesus' mighty name.